All right. If my numbers are correct, this is part 54, kind of, a long gospel. It's like message number 70, 71. The ones I number are typically the ones that I'm doing here, and then the ones that I do at, from as the podcast, I'm not numbering them, so... That's why there's 70 messages, but 54 parts to understanding law and gospel. We are on thesis number... Are we on thesis 9? All right, we're on thesis 10. All right, okay, yes. Thesis number 10. Does anybody remember what thesis number 10 is? Okay. Is there anything else to it? All right. How do you have yours written down, Sarah? Exact same way. Okay. Remember how the book has it? Uh, Thesis 10. uh, The word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith in a manner as if the mere inert acceptance of truths, even while a person is living in, does everybody remember how the book reads? Mortal sins renders that person righteous in the sight of God and saves him as if faith makes a person righteous and saves him for the reason that it produces in him love and reformation of his mode of living. And almost immediately in Thesis 10, we felt like that there was almost a, almost like a step back, right? We felt like, wait a minute, they've been trying to really drive this point home of the distinction between law and grace or law and gospel. Law tells us what to do, right? Gospel is what God has done for us and that we are not to mingle or merge these in any way, shape, or form. But in Thesis 10, what do we feel like the book started doing in Thesis 10? Do you remember what we felt like happened in Thesis 10? Anybody? Well, didn't we, I mean, at least I thought, yeah, that we felt like they were not only throwing on an infused righteousness, but this idea that, hey, if you have faith, then you're going to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And if you don't do this and this and this, then, you're, then your faith is not valid, your faith is not true. And we're like, how did we walk right back into that? Because we felt like for 50 something messages that we've been trying to argue against it even we felt this book was in a sense on our side right but why do you think in thesis 10 there's almost this i feel like it's a reversal they would argue that it's not a reversal but to me it feels like why make this big distinction between law and gospel to turn right back around and demonstrate that the way you know you've got the gospel is because you obey the law which seems major seems to be contradictory right because the law can't prove anything other than that we're sinners. Why do you think, and we talked about this in great length, why do you think that there's, that the book has almost went back in reverse? Because throughout church history, what has constantly been the struggle throughout the entire history of Christendom? All right, let's, let's try to go back through this again. Okay, I, I want to try to advance this, but if we have to repeat this a thousand times, I'm going to repeat it a thousand times. Throughout church history, there have been certain facts that everyone has had to acknowledge. Here are the facts that everyone seems to acknowledge. God is holy. God's laws are demanding, and we fall short of those laws continually. Christians who are saved still sin. Why do they sin? Everyone has been trying to figure out how to understand that sin, right? And what have been basically the go-to solutions throughout church history? Yeah, trying to explain the presence of sin in the life of of professing believers. What is the go-to solutions over and over and over throughout church history? I mean, they haven't changed in 2,000 years. We've talked about them a million times. What are the go-to solutions? Well, the first one is you lose your salvation, right? Isn't that a constant teaching throughout church history? You lose your salvation, right? We see it, we see it all over the place, yes? Right? 
even within Catholicism, right? You were in a state of grace. You're not in a state of grace. Even within Lutheranism, a baby is baptized and it washes away sin, but what can happen? Lose their salvation. Why would they say that? Because they have to try to understand how sin works in the life of a believer, right? Well, they mean, they mean they, even for them, there comes a point where, okay, I'm sorry, you can't be saved. You've gone too far. Yes? Church of Christ can lose your salvation. Uh, some charismatic denominations, you can lose your salvation. I mean, it's, that's, I mean, that's a go-to solution throughout church history, right? You can lose it. Now, others are like, no, 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 no. You cannot lose your salvation because, because Christ paid for all of your sins. You're still with the Holy Spirit. So that they've got, now they're stuck, right? That takes away that option. If that takes away their option, then what's the second solution? You never had it in the first place. And how do you know you never had it? Because your works don't prove it. Even though they would say Christ paid for all of our sins. Well, if all of my sins have been paid for, how can those sins prove I don't have it since they've all been paid for? But that's the second solution, all right? What's the third solution? Those are two. A third solution is to try to basically separate sins into categories. That these sins, if you commit, they prove you're not saved. But these sins, if you commit, that's just the normal struggle of Christian life. Because no one is perfect. No one is perfect, but there's a level of perfection you must reach. Because if you don't have it, now it may go back to, well, you either lost it or you were never saved. But they really try to break sins into some kind of a category. Even if they don't use the term mortal and venial, it happens, yes? Correct? Someone can struggle with, say, um, being unloving, being prideful, being selfish, being arrogant, being a gossip, being slander, slanderous, and being self-righteous, right? And they can struggle with that their whole Christian life, yes? Someone else struggles with sexual sin. Who's going to be viewed as not saved? The sexual sin. They're going to be gone. They're going to be dead. There's no way that can be said. The other person can struggle perpetually. Won't be why? Why? Who? Who? Do, who made that distinction? We do. So there's always these attempts to try to answer it. Yes. So let's go through this. You're lost, never saved. Try to separate sin into all kind of a mortal venial category. And why do you have to separate a mortal venial category? So then you can allow for what? A whole lot of sins. Just not the big ones. And so then everyone can feel somewhat comfortable, yes? And you don't have to say, you're lo- you lost it. You don't have to say you never had it. You can just say, hey, you're okay. Just don't do, just don't do that. Just don't do that. Just don't do that. Just don't do that. All right? Well, and another way of trying to address this is basically, and we'll just add this to this list of, of how the church has handled this, is to say, listen, you have the power, you have the ability to stop sinning. You can say no to sin, you can say yes to God, you can overcome. Right? To convince yourself that, hey, this is how we deal with it. You, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. Now, of course, we know what happens. If you continue to do it, then you go back to those... Pers- those other issues, either you, you were never saved or, or you lost it. But the point is, this is another way of trying to answer and deal with this issue, right? That you can do it. You have power. You have power. And the evangelical world lives where? Right here. You have this ability. You have this power. You have this power. You have this power. You have this power. And it's so frustrating to read this book and to get to this, this chapter and go, what is happening Remember how the, the thesis began? Like the first statement? Luther taught that those who would be saved must have a faith that produces love spontaneously and is fruitful and good works. Luther, the one who teaches justification by faith alone, the one who teaches that we're saved by an imputed righteousness, immediately says that those who would be saved must have a faith that produces love spontaneously and is fruitful and good works. So what produces your, what uh, pr- approves your salvation? 
A spontaneous love and fruitful and good works. Now listen what they go on to say. That does not mean that faith saves on the account of the love which springs from it, but that the faith which the Holy Spirit creates in and which cannot do, cannot but do good works justifies because it clings to the gracious promises of Christ and because it lays lay holds of Christ. They try to be very careful to say, no, 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 it's not what saves you, but if you are saved, it will be there. And if it's not there, then guess what? You have to come up with an answer of why it's not there. And why is it not there? Well, you either lose your salvation or you never had it. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's just crazy how, how much, how difficult everyone has with this subject. It's just, I, I don't understand why, but it's just a... Never ending, it's a never ending problem. Now, how far did we get into this thesis? Does anybody remember the last scripture we looked at? In your notes? Okay, we looked at Galatians 5, 6. Yes, we did. Okay, we talked about Sermon on the Mount. That's a lot. Okay, well, we're going to take a break here. And we're going to do a little history lesson, okay? All right. We're going to do a little history lesson. That took a little bit longer than I wanted, but that we're going to do a little history lesson just to add to this, because here's what happened. I did, let's see, I'm trying to remember the chronological order of events. Okay. I did a message for the podcast where I reviewed the very famous, 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 famous sermon, Dr. Law and Dr. Grace by Lester Roloff. All right. I reviewed the whole sermon, very famous sermon, and once again, we have this bizarre like I've heard the sermon a million times, but um, it's one of these situations where when I listened to it in the past, I perceived it one way, and now I clearly see it differently. But it's the basic kind of concept that once you become saved, God reaches in, takes out your bad, sinful heart, pulls it out, and gives you a brand new heart. So now you can do what? You, you can now obey. You can now, you can now do it. You can now do it. And, which, and, mo- and Christians love this sermon. They think it's the greatest thing in the history of, you know, mankind, everybody thinks it's brilliant. The storytelling in it is very good, and it draws you in. There's a lot of positives about it, and he says lots of things that really sound great. But once again, it's this idea that Jesus came to do what? We say save us, but some people believe when Jesus comes to save us, he saves us not so much focused on the imputed, but it's focused on this internal change, 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 change. So the idea is Christ didn't come to save a sinner by declaring him righteous. Christ came to save sinners by making them righteous practically. And that's the focus. Many Christians you know who believe and salvation, they say they believe by an imputed righteousness. They, believe, they say they believe that, but the emphasis becomes what? Not on the imputed, but on what kind of righteousness? The, the, the righteousness that happens in your life. And it ultimately, it, it destroys the imputed focus. The focus becomes on something other. Well, there, this is not a new thing. This is an old thing, all right? So I'm going to give you the name of an individual. And then we're going to just study a little bit about his life. And uh, I almost wanted to make this a standalone, but that's okay. Maybe I'll do this again for a a podcast. All right. The story begins on December the 19th, 1498. December the 19th, 1498. That's when the following individual was born, December the 19th, 1498. Okay, if I said 1948, I don't know why. 1498. All right, you ready? His first name is and- Andreas, A-N-D-R-E-A-S. All right. And his last name, O-S-I-A-N-D-E-R. Andreas, some say Osiander, some say Osiander. What do y'all think? You have a pre- preference? When you come Osiander or Osiander, what do you think? All right. 
I want to say Osiander. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go with Osiander because I think that's the correct way. Right? What do you think? Okay, let's go with Osiander. Okay, that's what we'll go with. Andreas Osiander was born uh, December the 19th, 1498. He died October the 17th, 1552. All right. Andreas Osiander, born in 19, or, yeah, December 19th, 1498, died October 17th, 1552. Does anybody know anything about this individual? German Lutheran theologian and Protestant reformer. A German Lutheran theologian and Protestant reformer. He's right there in that pretty critical time of the Protestant Reformation, don't you agree? That right there in the midst of it, okay? He's a German Lutheran theologian of Protestant Reformation. So he's literally in the country, right? I mean, he's in the country. I mean, everything. All right? Now, he had, there were two important publications that he wrote. Two important ones. Well, there's probably more. There's more, but these are two, the two that will stand out, all right? Of the, the first one, and I don't have the, the German titles, but in English, the first one is Of the Law and the Gospel. Of the Law and the Gospel. That sound familiar? Okay. Once again, what were they trying to figure out even in this period of time? The distinction between law and gospel and how do these work? How do these work? How do these work? And qu- Clearly, you can see, why would this be such a big deal in, the, in, in this period of time? Why do you think this would be such a big deal in the 1500s to write us something about law and gospel? Because what was the big emphasis here during the Reformation? This justification by faith alone apart from works. Apart from works. Well, the minute you say apart from works, what does everyone immediately get afraid, afraid of? Yeah, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. So everyone's got to always immediately, every, people panic. They hear gospel and they lose it. They're like, no, you, there's got to be a change. You've got to do something. And it's like, could you take a step back? Like, do you care about the God? I care about the God. And then what's weird is then you'll be the one accused of not preaching the gospel. And it's like, it's just, it's so, I don't understand. I don't even understand sometimes how this controversy swirls out of control but this has been going on since the 1500s, all right? So, of long gospel, what do you think the second one was called? Well, you can take a lucky guess. Of justification. Of long gospel and of justification. Which would make sense, right? Because where are we at? Right in the middle of the Reformation. What are some of the big issues? Obviously, justification is a big issue, is it not? Around 1549, he's offered to become a professor. Now, depending on which sources you read, this seems like to me maybe kind of a calculated thing because I think he was starting to have some problems inside the church kind of concept because, you know, you can't always say what you want in church, right? You got you to do what in church? Got to walk the party line, man. You cannot deviate, cannot question. You will, you, this is what you will preach. If you think about it, the pulpit is the worst place on the face of the earth to really explore and struggle and study and to figure out. You're not supposed to do any, everyone says the pastor is supposed to study. Does anyone actually believe that? Okay, you should all say no. Why can't a pastor actually do study? and bring that study to the pulpit. Why do you think? Why do you think the pulpit is such a negative place for a study? Well, they just want to hear what the party line says, right? Right? There's no room for questioning or struggle. What happens in study? What else happens in study? 
Does study produce change in thinking? Does study uh, cause you to question and change maybe what you previously thought? Well, it should all the time, okay? I mean, you're not, to me, you're not studying if you're not changing, right? If you're, if, if, here's the, that's, okay, let me, let me try to explain the difference, okay? Study, or how can I explain this? What would be the difference between learning and going to school? What's the difference between learning and going to school? What do you think the difference is between learning and going to school? School is the, is the process of simply learning facts that you're to regurgitate onto a test and get a grade so that you get a piece of paper. You can walk out being considered the smartest person in the school. You can be, you can be valedictorian, salutatorian. You can be on the honor roll. And you, all you did was do what? Grasp facts. And I'll be blunt, vomited those facts back up on a piece of paper, demonstrating that you retained said facts and you could recall said facts in a specific period of time, like a test or on a paper. And you're viewed as being extremely smart, yes? Does that mean that any actual study took place? Any actual learning? Well, no actual learning if you can't do what? Talk about the actual things that that information should lead you to. Anyone can remember what year it was when, you know, the Mexican troops invaded into the... I won't even use the word invaded. We can get to whole issues. Let's just say when Mexico and Texas had a fight over their independence, yes? Can people remember dates? Can people remember names? Can people remember the events? Can people recite the letter that was written inside the Alamo asking for help? Yes. Can people know how many numbers of men were inside the Alamo versus the number of uh, Mexican troops that were outside? Yes. Can you remember even the route maybe they took into the San Antonio area? Yes. Can you remember the name of the battle that happened after the Alamo? Yes. Can you remember the date when the Texas, when they declared their independence? Yes. All these facts you can remember. But to engage in greater discussion about the cause, the reason, justification, right, wrong, how all of this fits together, that that doesn't happen from going to school. That happens from learning. I knew plenty of people who could pass a test on World War II, engage in any meaningful discussions about the issues around World War II, and you, they just look at it, and you're like, you're the valedictorian of the school. And you never mind, just never mind. There's no point in having a conversation with you. Like, it's just, it's useless. There's a difference, right? What do people want in church? They just want to go to school. And what am I supposed to do? Teach the curriculum, dummy. And what's the curriculum? The doctrine you hold to. And I'm supposed to teach the curriculum. Right? The the people in the pew, they're they're, they're the board of directors, right? And they're like, this is what you will teach. And what am I not to do? I don't, I, don't, I don't need to study. I just need to memorize the curriculum. That's all I've got to do. And if I do start studying, what do I have to do? Find a way to take my study and make it fit what? The curriculum. Right? I, there can be no deviation. And any deviation or any struggle, I just shut up, color within the lines, and everyone what is happy. Make sure you get out by noon. You tell me it's a good sermon. Make sure we got some good music, some good programs. We've got to have some potlucks and fellowships. Everybody shakes hands. Everybody's great. And everybody thinks church is the most wonderful experience of their life. And then guess what? Never takes place. Actual learning. And I, I believe that's the one of the most, the most horrible thing that's ever happened in the church. Is that the pulpit is a place of restriction. It's not a place of freedom where you can like, hey, guys, we're going to dig into this, and we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and maybe it's not this, and maybe we were wrong here, and what about this, and let's do this, and let's... Nobody, everyone says they want that. 
But I know they don't, because what will happen? They'll leave. They'll, they'll leave. It always happens because they don't really want it. Everyone claims they want it. But when you get that, what happens? It's uncomfortable, isn't it? And you've probably all been, if you've ever been to college, you probably have all experienced, even sometimes in high school, you'll have that teacher who's not so much worried about going to school, but more worried about learning. And then it's a whole, to me, it's the most amazing experience, right? Because you're digging in and you're questioning and you're struggling and you're trying to figure it out. And you're like, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? And then that's how understanding evolves, right? That's how it grows. That's how it moves forward. I would hate, and, and, and I know that what I'm about to say is going to sound utterly ridiculous. I would loathe, I would loathe to be in a church where the way the pastor presents a text or teaches or pr- believes remain the same five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years. That would be, I would rather burn the building to the ground. Because what would that demonstrate? No learning. That I'm just memorizing the part. I, I, I don't understand it. And that's, why, that's what used to drive me crazy. I mean, I've experienced it multiple times in my life. But after I moved from Nebraska back to here, and then a few years later, many, or you know, multiple years later, many of those people from Nebraska who then would either contact me or start talking to me, it, like we were not the same people. Like, like just, it's over. Just move on with your life. I don't know what you're talking. You're still the Christian you were 10 years ago. And then they can't figure out what's wrong with me. The reason I'm not going to be the same person I was 10 years ago because I'm studying. I'm not reciting the part. And everybody just wants to remember the part. Now, why do I say all of that? He took the job as a professor. Why do you think he possibly took the job as a professor? Because guess what he could do within the college, the university? He could do what? Study. Explore. Now, I know some people say the church is not the place for that. But I just, I so disagree with that. Where else should it be? Right? Okay, one, no, but maybe, maybe I I disagree. But I understand why he took the job as a professor. Again, there's some argument maybe about the motivations. Why? But some felt that he was starting to cause, there was starting to be some trouble. There's starting to be some trouble. So he becomes a professor, all right? And, and listen, Osiander uh, accepted this position because it allowed him the full scope of the spread and pursuit of his doctrinal views. These were somewhat peculiar and different from those of the other reformers particularly on the question of, what do you think? On the question of justification. Oh, boy. Osiander has some peculiar, peculiar, particular views that are different than the other reformers. So where would be the best place to pursue this? In the college, not the church. Why would it be a problem in the church? Because the church, the people who show up at that church are going to want what? A, A curriculum. Just give me what it says. And you know how I, even when I use curriculum, what do I always do? If anybody's ever listened to my Bible study exercise, we have a curriculum. The church has been paying for it now for a long time. I deviate from the curriculum all day long, right? If I was, if I was a school teacher, you know how, how much trouble I'd get in, right? They'd give me a curriculum and the kids would come going, we're learning this. Would think that's not in the curriculum because I would so deviate from the curriculum in 5.2 seconds. Now, what would I use the curriculum for? I would use it as a starting point and as a counterpoint and to supplement, right? 
hey, this is what your textbook says, but hey, let's explore these other 12 different ideas. But that's bad. Don't do that. So he's there. And, he, and so what, where, where is he differing with the reformers? On justification. On justification. Uh, listen to these words. Now I'm quoting from an article on us, oh, Andreas Osiander, right? Here we go. Here we go. You ready? In opposition to the external view of justification by faith alone, as they taught it, Osiander insisted that faith is the medium of the indwelling of the Christ in the human soul. Now, that may not say anything to you, but there's a division happening here, right? And here's the kind of and here's kind of the divide. Some were reviewing justification in a very external way, and he wanted to view it in a more internal way. What's the significance of viewing justification purely from an external way? Well, what, what's the what's the things that flow from that? If we view justification simply as external, what happens? What's the, the things that should flow from that concept? Okay, what do you think? That's one. What do we think here? Well, 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 well that's, that's definitely connected. That's definitely connected. Those who viewed it external viewed that externally there's a righteousness that's simply what? Imputed to my account. So it's external, meaning nothing is happening where? Inside. Nothing is happening inside, right? I'm, I'm just walking around. Guess, think of it this way, all right? So here I am. I'll just think over here. Here I am, right, before salvation, right? Here I am before salvation, right? Everybody see over here? I'm right here, okay? God declares me to be righteous by faith. Here I am after that event. Guess what? Internally, what am I? The exact same person. Now, to say those words, some Christians will lose their absolute mind on you. They will flip out. They, will, they, they can't handle that. No, I'm different. Okay, well, if you're so different, then why are you yelling at me? If you're so different, why are you being so disrespectful? If you're so different, why are you being so rebellious? If you're different, why are you causing so much trouble? If you're, di- if you're so different, why are you gossiping about me? If you're different, why are you slandering me? If you're different, why? And aren't those all good questions? Everybody should say, yes. The view of external is that it's out here. Osiander didn't like that concept. What did he want to focus on? Internal. And he focused on which aspect? That faith is the medium of the indwelling Christ in the human soul. The form, this form of statement he proved from Luther's writings was authorized, but he used it in distinction from Luther to describe living faith as appropriating Christ. So he felt, he thought he could find justification for his view in the writings of Luther, but in a roundabout way, he took the words of Luther and went in a, a direction that would go beyond what Luther wanted. Now, why is that important? Because this is the subtle game played in theology every single day, and it ticks me off so much. You can have the exact same verbiage, you can have the exact same words, but you mean something entirely different, and you won't just admit that you believe something entirely different.
Do, do, do we think, do you need a little bit more to understand Osiander's view a little bit more? Okay, all right. All right. Uh, oh, definitely, definitely. All right. Okay, here we go. Um, see how much of this I want to hear. All right, I, I'm going to try, this, this paragraph is not going to make a lot of sense because I cut this out from a bigger argument. So when I start reading this, just don't, you don't have to write anything down. You're going to get a little confused for a second. Just stay with me, all right? Here we go. The, this, par, this paragraph begins with, That Christ, considered in his human nature only, could not by his obedience to the divine law obtain justification and pardon for sinners. Neither can we be justified before God by embracing and applying to ourselves through faith the righteousness and obedience of the man Christ. It is only through that eternal and essential righteousness which dwells in Christ, considered as God, and which resides in his divine nature, united to the human, that mankind can obtain complete justification. I'll try to help you work through this. All right? Now, when we speak of Christ, Osiander said, okay, if we consider in his human nature only that, this is what Osiander said, could not by his obedience to the divine law obtain justification and pardon for sinners. In other words, Christ just as a man obeying the law was not sufficient to bring about our salvation. Okay? He goes on to say, um, neither can we be justified before God by embracing and applying to ourselves through faith the righteousness and obedience of the man Christ. In other words, Christ, simply by obeying the law, that wasn't enough. And us, simply believing in Christ's obedience, that's not enough. We've got to go something further. And so he, he doesn't want to just look to what Christ did as a man. He wants to look to supposedly the divine aspect of Christ and that what we need is the divine aspect, not his obedience. We need his divine essence. And where do we need that divine essence? Inside of us. Inside of us. And then I'll continue reading. Okay, I know it sounds very confusing, but that's okay. All right, here we go. Um, it is only through that eternal and essential righteousness that dwells in Christ, considered as God, and which resides in his divine nature, united to the human, that mankind can obtain and complete justification. If we're going to obtain complete justification, then it's not so much what Christ did for us, it's Christ in me, and then somehow that essential righteousness becomes my righteousness. Right? In other words, he doesn't want to look justification as a forensic, as a legal declaration. He wants to see justification as that I, Christ is in me, and now that righteousness is inside of me and a part of me. You say, well, that, that seems kind of very subtle and I don't quite understand the distinction, but this was a big distinction from him. And remember how in theology, how do distinctions work? Here's, like, here's the doctrine and then there's always this what? Small steps. Small steps. Small steps. Small steps. And then all of a sudden you end up going, well, what just happened? But it's a, sl- it's a subtle step away from what? Forensic justification. I go on. That man becomes a partaker of the divine righteousness by faith, since it it is in consequences consequence of the uniting principle that Christ dwells in the heart of man with his divine righteousness. Now, wherever this divine righteousness dwells, there God can behold no sin. Therefore, when it, prese- when it is present with Christ in the hearts of the regenerate, they are on its own accord considered by the deity as righteous, although they be sinners. 
Moreover, this divine and justifying righteousness of Christ excites the faithful to the pursuit of holiness and to the practice of virtue. So, let me explain. What we say is, why does God see me as righteous? How do we understand that? Why does God see us as righteous? Because of an external imputed righteousness. What he's saying, why does God see you as righteousness, is because the righteous, righteous Christ is where? Inside of you, so then God sees that righteousness because it's inside of you. Now, right there, you can say, okay, well, he's still kind of looking at it from an imputed way. He is, to a, a, a certain extent. But then what does he say right there at the end? Because it's inside of me, what happens? Do you remember the, the sentence? You read it. Are you ready? Moreover, this divine and justifying righteousness of Christ excites the faithful to the pursuit of holiness and to the practice of virtue. Why does he want it in you? Because it will produce what? It basically will produce a righteousness. It's got to be in me to produce it. Because if it's outside of me, does it produce it? Do you see, this? Do you see the subtle difference? What does an imputed righteousness do for me internally? What does an imputed righteousness do for me internally? Nobody wants to say it. Nothing. Okay, I, I know it's, you almost feel like you committed blasphemy by saying that, didn't you, right? Because every other Christian around you would go, would, that would just throw holy water on you and probably think you're possessed by a demon. Okay? But, so it's outside. Osiander wants to find a way to maintain the idea of a forensic, but what is he hoping to accomplish? By having something happening where? Inside, so that it will do what? Change the righteousness inside of me. Does everybody see that? Let me read another description. Here we go. You ready? Osiander was a Christian mystic and his theology incorporated the idea of mystical union with Christ and the word of God. He believed that justification for a Christian believer resulted from Christ dwelling in a person. Contrary to Luther's belief that justification was imputed by God's grace. Osiander believed that the righteousness of a believer was accomplished by the indwelling of God. Thus, God finds one's righteous because Christ is in that person. Calvin rejected these views of Osiander, as did Melanchthon and Flacius. Flacius' opposing view was that God justifies us by Christ's works of obedience on the cross, not by his presence in us. We are justified by what Christ did for us. We are not justified because he is in us. We are justified because of Christ's obedience to the law, not because of Christ being in me. Does everybody see this? Is it subtle? Yes. Is it important? Very. But what question does it raise? How we understand ourselves as a Christian. Now, now, am I in any way arguing against the Holy Spirit indwelling us? I'm not arguing against it. One, his presence in us is not the, the reason for my justification. Yes. Everyone should agree with that. 
And not only that, what's the big issue? This leads us right to the issue is a lot of people believe because the Spirit is in us that what should happen? This is a common teaching now. We can forget Osiander because this just kind of continues to stay within the Christian world to some level. Osiander's position may not be maintained because many, basically everyone rejected it, right? He, he was pretty much rejected by everyone. But some of these concepts have evolved into what we see in the evangelical church today. What do we see in the evangelical church today that would be, sound very much like Osiander? I mean, come on, all of you believed it, a good portion of your Christian life. Not lordship salvation, just the concept. You don't even have to get to lordship salvation. But the concept is, if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what should happen? Something's going to be, he's doing something. You're different. So the focus, and, all, and listen, is it not subtle? Those people who focus on that, would they tell you they believe that you're saved by an imputed righteousness? Yes, but immediately what did they become preoccupied with? What you do based on God being in you. And what, it, what should be the question that all of us should have? If God is in me, and God is the one making the difference, what should be the logical question every Christian should ask? Why are we not perfect? Right? Perfection, I mean, that should be the, the thing. And I, I had someone message me and go, well, that, your problem is, is you make too much out of the word overcome. That we can overcome but not be perfect. And I don't understand how overcoming doesn't equate per- perfection, right? Wouldn't over, what, the idea of overcoming, so they try to use it in a, I can't, I'd have to go find the comment. I'm, I'm working through all the comments on, I'm doing a series on YouTube comments because I've gotten so many. Um, I just need an entire series to respond to all of them because trying to type them out, I'd be writing books instead of just doing podcasts. But um, it's this weird thing. Now, the reason I mention it here is because Thesis 10 fits perfectly with this because what are they struggling with? If we have faith, something's got to be different inside. 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 If we, if, for us, and I'll and just, well, I, I want to get back to thesis 10, but I at least wanted you to know about this. This is called the Osiander Controversy, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with it. It's called the Osiander Controversy. It's what it's called. There's all kinds of articles, books have been written on it. It's an important part of church history. Calvin rejected it, Melanchthon rejected it, Luther rejected it. Now it seems, depending on your historical sources, it seemed like Luther wasn't too interested in fighting this. Felt like he had other problems to deal with, right? So it, it may not have reached as big as some of the other problems, but, it's the, but I mean, he, had, he, had, he had a lot of other issues, right? He's like, you know, whatever, I got, whatever, yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. He was too busy calling other people dung on a silver platter. That's true. Okay, because he did do that a lot. Okay, but you get the idea. Or calling for people to die. All right, but what, whatever he was doing, he, he didn't seem to fight this. But it's the Osiander controversy. So here is the question I have for all of us. All right. Hopefully that helps. All right. A little bit of church history always goes a long way. Right. I think our discussion about why the pulpit really stifles. What we really need is, is, to me, frightening and horrible. It makes me hate so much of what the church has become. It's just a, it's, it's just a, to me, the church is nothing more than music theater. It's nothing more than a play. Everyone plays their part. The pastor's just supposed to recite his lines and shut up. And Because people don't want a pastor who thinks. They want a pastor who just recites. Because if you think, you'll get yourself in trouble. I can't stand, oh, yeah, I'll, just, I'll just go on a full-blown rant. But all right, here we go. Are you ready? Here's the question. We do believe that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, yes? Yes. Now, what does that mean practically in the life of a believer? What does the indwelling of the Holy Spirit mean practically for a believer? What can we dogmatically say it doesn't mean? What can we be dogmatic about? It doesn't mean what? 
we def, okay, we absolutely dogmatically can assert it will not get us to perfection. Agreed? We can dogmatically assert that it will not cause us to stop sinning perfectly. I know it's kind of saying the same thing, but I want to say it two different ways. It will not get us to perfection, and it will not cause us to stop sinning. Right? So immediately, what can we say about the presence of the Holy Spirit in us? That whatever it does do, there seems to be a, a limit to it, yes? What else can we dogmatically say about the Holy Spirit in us? We can dogmatically say it won't get us to perfection. We can dogmatically say it's not going to cause us to stop sinning perfectly. What else can we dogmatically say about the Holy Spirit in us? Doesn't lead us into all truth, because if it did, there would be how many Christian, different kinds of Christianity? Be one. So immediately we know that a lot of the claims about what it does is what? Fraudulent. We just know it, that we can't understand it that way. You say, well, it's got to do something. Okay, well, look, we can all agree it probably should do something, but we have to at least agree on what it doesn't do. And so if we, can, if we agree on what it doesn't do, then that means trying to define it may be a bad idea, yes? Because everything else becomes very what? Subjective. We know this. David appeared to have had the Holy Spirit when he did what? Commit adultery and murder someone. How do we know that he uh, appeared to have the Holy Spirit? Because in his confession, what does he ask God not to do? Don't take your spirit from me. So meaning the Spirit did not stop David from doing what? Sinning in a horrific, 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 horrific way. That's a troubling thing. Right? If the, if the people at the church of Corinth are babes in Christ, they all had the Holy Spirit. Didn't stop them from doing what? Getting drunk at the Lord's Supper? I mean, just think about that. Can you imagine if you went to a church and everybody got drunk taking the Lord's Supper? You probably would leave that church and say, I'm never going back to that place. In fact, what would you say? They weren't saved. Come on, you know that's what you would say. So, we, we, that, that's, what I, that's what I'm going to focus on. All right, let's stop right there. There's the Oceander controversy. Now you're experts on it. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. This morning, we are left once again with more questions than we are with answers. Uh, but Lord, I pray that you would allow this to continue to be a place that we can struggle with these questions and try our best to understand how to embrace this conflict and at times these apparent contradictions. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...